If you want to turn with me uh, in your Bibles, uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 4, find 203 of the, the Pew Bibles. So Hebrews chapter 4, page 1203. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 13 tonight. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath, on oath in my anger, they shall never my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. Formerly had the gospel preached to them, did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will, f will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Back? Yeah. Um, I was just saying Stephen's doing great. Uh, I had to fill in a reference for him recently uh, for this application that he's made to, to be a Presbyterian minister. So after he and I talked about a fee, um, I wrote a very, um, a very winsome reference uh, and that wasn't hard to do. Um, thank you, Stephen, for leading us this evening. Um, Stephen has already said to you that he's glad he's not preaching tonight. I, I'm not so glad. Um, as you know, I'm quite skilled at dividing up our passages to give all the hard stuff to other people, uh, and normally I get that right, but I, I don't know what, I got it wrong. Um, somehow here. We, we both agreed that chapter 3, the last one, wasn't too bad. I think we've said Hebrews is, is going to be tricky enough, okay? Um, we said, Stephen and I agreed that chapter 3 wasn't too bad. Chapter 4 is, is tricky, right? So I'm saying that, you've heard me say that. I think it sometimes helps if the preacher admits that rather than the preacher gets up and says, oh, this is all really easy, and if only you were as smart and as godly as me, you'd see it all. Um, this, this takes a bit of getting your head around. 
Um, we've already prayed. Um, I, I was going to say when I started here, you know, wish me luck, but I think we pray in our tradition, don't we? We don't wish each other luck. We ask God's help uh, for people, and you've already done that. So I think we're ready to start. Hebrews 4, have it open before you. Um, before I say anything, I'm asking you a question, and that is, what's Hebrews 4 about broadly? Now, just while you look down at the text, remember what we've just read. The ground rules for my question are, you're allowed one word of an answer. So you have to tell me in one word what Hebrews 4 is about. So what I mean by that is, uh, there's a, a word or a theme here that's uh, so, so much repeated that I think it, it's probably fine to, to label the chapter um, and, and explore it under this one uh, word. You, you know, when I stand at the front, in front of a big crowd like this, that most of my questions are rhetorical questions. I'm not going to look somebody in the eye and go, you, row 72. Um, I wonder, did you get it? There's a word repeated 10 times in this chapter. Um, I, I, so I, I've said to you before, I, I trained a bit to be a minister, all right? You, you spend years going to college and learning stuff, and you don't get to use it that much. So there's a great word we can use tonight, a German word, which makes it even better, Leitwort, okay? A Leitwort is a word that is used repetitively to, to really to really grab you. It's, it's the theme. Does anybody see the light wart in this chapter? Well, I'm going to say it's the word rest. All right? So we're going to talk this evening about entering into God's rest. I heard a, a wonderful reflection just in, in everyday life um, of the idea of entering God's rest. Eric Peterson, the pastor of a Presbyterian Church, First Presbyterian Church in Kalispell, Montana, speaking about his dad, Eugene Peterson, who had died just a couple of days before. He says, it's fitting that his death came on a Monday, the day of the week he always honored as a Sabbath during his years as a pastor. After a lifetime of faithful service to the church, running the race with gusto, it's reassuring to know that Eugene has now entered into the fullness of the kingdom of God and has been embraced by eternal Sabbath rest. Isn't that beautiful? To enter the fullness of the kingdom of God, an eternal Sabbath. That's what we want to think about this evening. Okay, so back to this book of Hebrews. Because we're only doing it every couple of weeks, um, I, I suppose we have to work a wee bit harder than usual to keep our thread. A couple of weeks ago, um, or the last time I was preaching in this series, certainly, I offered you a piece of advice for trying to keep a handle on what's going on. Always keep the author's purpose before you. We should probably do that with every letter. And if, if we do that, I think we'll see that every bit of material in this letter can be classified under, it's, it's either one thing or the other. It's either material that shows that Jesus is superior. Stephen's already reminded us about that. Jesus is better. So it either shows us that Jesus is superior or it's there to remind the, the reader to remain faithful to Jesus. I'm going to call one a, a theological purpose. Tell us about who Jesus is or who God is. 
and then a pastoral purpose. Keep us with them. Keep us focused. Keep us looking in the right direction. So bear that in mind because that, that's really... Uh, probably I, I should have put those in the, the other order. The, the theological stuff actually serves the pastoral function. The whole reason this letter's written is to get people to stick to Jesus. That's why I've called this series No Plan B. There is nowhere else. There is no one else. Stick with Jesus. And the theological teaching supports that pastoral purpose. Okay, very quickly, the journey so far. Chapter 1, feel free to flick with me while we go here. The, the writer tells us that Jesus is greater than the angels. Look at verse 4. He's as much superior, of chapter 1, he's as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And then he opens chapter 2 with the first of five warnings that we're going to get in this book. He warns us to pay more careful attention so that we don't drift away. He goes on in chapter 2 to show that although Jesus is superior, there was a, a time when he humbled himself, when he dropped down, we call it the incarnation, we'll be focusing on it at Christmas time in a few weeks' time. He came and lived among us. He shared our humanity so that he could save us. Verse 17 of chapter 2, he was made to be like his brothers in every way that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And then a couple of weeks ago, Stephen had us thinking about chapter 3, and we saw there that Jesus is greater than Moses. Uh, now Moses, uh, you've got to understand this, the, the writer of the Hebrews will not disrespect Moses. Moses is great in the eyes of a Jewish person, and the writer of the Hebrews wants to keep Moses great, but he just wants to say Jesus is better, because Jesus is always better. All right? Moses is great, but Jesus is better. And he finishes that chapter contrasting the faithfulness of Jesus with the unfaithfulness of the, the people of Israel. And he does it particularly in chapter 3 by quoting Psalm 95. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden his hearts as you did in the rebellion. So, after quoting from Psalm 95 a couple of times in chapter 3, the, the writer keeps Psalm 95 bubbling over in chapter 4. So he's not really breaking new ground. I, I think we'll probably see that chapter 3 and chapter 4 fit together quite well. Maybe part 1 and part 2 of a, a wee section here in, in the book of Hebrews. So if we keep, keep what we've just said about chapter 3 in mind... That'll help us transition well into chapter 4. Right, keep your finger where you are in Hebrews 4, and then open up your Bibles uh, to Psalm 95. I think we've got to have a look at Psalm 95, see what's going on there, because it's, it's dominated both of these chapters by now. Um, let's see what is going on in 95. So page 602. I'll give you a second to, to find that, Psalm 95. So it begins, it's a pretty straightforward psalm of praise, but then in verse 7, we get this warning that our author of Hebrews has chosen to reference as part of his argument to these Jewish Christians. Notice that he doesn't quote it verbatim. Don't know how you feel about that. How very dare he quote the Old Testament but not do it exactly right. Well, he doesn't do it exactly 
He says, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The psalmist, though, is much more specific. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert. It's the night of rhetorical questions. What do you know about Meribah and Massa? I'm going to make an assumption here just for a second. I'm going to assume that there's at least one person in the building who doesn't know a whole lot about them. Is that all right? Okay. A few more than one person nodded there. I I think there might be more than one. But anyway, flick with me to Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to find out about Meribah and Massa. Page 75, if that helps you. So the Israelites at this point, they're traveling through the desert. They're on their way to the promised land, and they run out of water. Verse 2, they quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Look down to verse 7. You'll see then that Moses called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Quarreling, Meribah. Testing, Massa. The people are testing the Lord and quarreling against Moses. They won't trust God. So this rebellion in the desert, that's what the psalmist's talking about. That's what he is invoking when he writes Psalm 95. And now the writer of the Hebrews is going via Psalm 95 back to this rebellion in the desert. Now we're, okay, we're probably a bit ready to to think about, well, this Psalm 95, why is the writer of the Hebrews choosing to take us back there? We've said already that chapter 4 is all about entering God's rest. Chapter 4 is not the first time we've mentioned rest in this letter. It's, it's come up a couple of times in chapter 3. Uh, you'll notice it there in verse 11, and that's direct, in the direct quotation from Psalm 95. And then verse 18 of chapter 3. And to whom did God swear that they would never be able to enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we can see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. It's quite clear what he's saying here, isn't it? There was a generation in Israel that failed to trust God, who tested him, who quarreled uh, with their appointed leader Moses, and they fell in the desert. We know that, don't we? whole generation didn't make it to the promised land. They didn't enter into God's rest. So we're we're starting to get a handle on on how this all works now. As we move into chapter 4, notice what the author does. He warns us to be careful not to fail in the same way as Israel did. Don't miss out on God's rest. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So at one point, it's dead simple. Don't, don't be like the guys before. Don't miss out on God's rest. But at another point, it's not simple at all. Wait a minute. 
writer to the Hebrews? How does this promise of entering God's rest still stand? What do you mean? What are you talking about? That's what we're going to think about for a few moments this evening. We need to work out what this rest is. It's clearly not the same rest that, that we read about in Exodus 17 or that the, the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 95. It, it's not enter, crossing a physical border into a promised land. Entering God's rest must mean something quite different for these early Jewish Christians and, and for us today. The writer wants us to see, it's quite interesting, I, I hope we are, are picking it up, he says that we're in a position not unlike the early Israelites. He says, we also have had the gospel preached to us, not just as they did. Sorry. We also have had a gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it didn't combine it with faith. So that's kind of weird, a gospel in the desert? Well, they'd, they'd been offered God's salvation in the Exodus. They'd been offered a chance, they'd come out of Egypt, they'd been offered a chance to, to fully experience God's salvation, to go into a promised land, and they didn't take it. They missed it. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to be sure that we who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have been rescued from sin and death, don't fail now to enter into our promised land, the rest that he offers us. Okay, how are we going to do this for the rest of our time this evening? We're going to answer three questions about this rest. What is it? What is God's rest? Where can we find it? How do we enter into it? The what, where, and how of God's eternal rest. So what is it? First question. The scholars have had a, a good ding-dong about those verses, verses 3 to 5, that kind of area. What, what, what are we actually talking about here? Which era, which part of God's story are we talking about? So some people talk about the future rest. You know, it's what happens to a person when they die, when they go to heaven. Other people are talking about the rest that we can know today in the present life um, and that we need to respond to God. The, the, the passage even uses the word today. There's something here and now about all of this. I found one of the commentators very helpful when he clarified the situation well. He said, the promise of rest may be accepted today, but whether entry into that rest is accomplished now through faith or at death or at the second coming of Jesus is nearly impossible to say. It probably includes all three. Okay? Rest now, today, when we die, and at the end of all things, when Jesus uh, brings his shalom to the world. One of my professors at college, Paul Stevens, he, he says that this passage points to God's ultimate purposes. He says, the new heaven and the new earth, presented prophetically as God's Sabbath rest in Hebrews 4, is full and final salvation. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest. But the rest he brings doesn't stop at the personal. He's bringing complete shalom for the universe. 
Sabbath rest is the threefold rest of God, of humankind, and of the whole of creation. This is the ultimate goal of God's saving and consummating work, and therefore our true destiny. So what we're talking about here is rest for today, rest for our future, and rest for the whole created universe. We don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss our place in that. So we've thought about what this rest is, and that brings us to our second question. Where do you find this rest? And we'll look for a few moments at the the verses from verse 6 to 11. This is not an easy passage tonight, and this part is the not easy paragraph in a not easy passage, all right? Let me try and tell you what I think is happening there. Verse 7, the author is saying, David lived a long time after the initial promise of rest to God's people. Verse 7, he also says, in Psalm 95, David's renewed the offer that God's people could enter into his rest by not following the pattern of disobedience of Israel in the desert. And verse 8, the reason why David is still offering rest to God's people is because although Joshua physically brought the people into the land, that somehow doesn't fulfill the promise. Okay, Joshua's brought them in, but there's, there's more to this than that. And then verse 9, the Bible's still relevant today. There's still a Sabbath rest for the people of God who hear and obey his voice today. And verse 10, entering God's rest means resting from our work, just as God did on the seventh day of creation. There's a lovely wee thing here, which I don't want you to miss. And we don't see it because we don't speak Hebrew. We don't have the the biblical languages before us. See that mention of Joshua in verse 8? His name is Yeshua. That's the Hebrew name for the man who brought Israel finally into the promised land. And it's exactly the same name as Jesus. So in this passage, we have an Old Testament Jesus, if you like, who brings the people across a physical border into a land and wins some sort of rest for them. But then we have the real, better Jesus. The New Testament, New Covenant, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the one who's better by far. And he wins that full and final rest, that shalom forever that we've been talking about here. It's a lovely wee thing. One of the commentators I was reading made a connection for me that while it's not explicit in this text, once I saw it, I thought, yeah, I think that's, that's certainly on the mind of the writer to the Hebrews, and it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful connection he makes. He argues that the writer at this point has a particular moment or a particular Sabbath in mind when he talks about this Sabbath rest. One last flicking exercise. If you flick with me for a second, Leviticus 23 
on page 127. So there's a section there beginning at verse 26 that the NIV entitles the Day of Atonement. And it is, it's a a bit of teaching about this Day of Atonement. So if you read verse 27, the Lord tells the people through Moses that the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. And then verse 32, it is a Sabbath of rest for you. The Day of Atonement is going to be a Sabbath a day of rest. The day of atonement, if you remember, is that one day in the year when the high priest makes an offering for the sins of the people. And it's a Sabbath for God's people. Did the writer to the Hebrews have this in mind, this connection between atonement and Sabbath? I think he did. Just look at how he starts his chapter. Verses 1 and 2. He's talking about the gospel, which has to do with Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. How does he close his chapter? Well, unsurprisingly, he moves on to start talking about Jesus, the great high priest. The atoning work of Jesus, the great high priest, the atoning work which we share and celebrate in the Gospels very much at the heart of this chapter 4. Do you see where this takes us? To a very, very beautiful place. The Sabbath that remains for the people of God, the Sabbath that the writer's talking about here in Hebrews 4 is a new day of atonement. A celebration of the day when Jesus goes and becomes our high priest. He cleanses us from our sin by his perfect death on the cross. Where do you go to find God's Sabbath rest? You go to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you trust in the finished work of Jesus, the great high priest. We've talked about what the rest is It's God's Sabbath rest for nothing less than our full salvation for all eternity, the shalom God created us for. Now we've seen where it's found. It's found in the cross of Jesus, his finished work there as our great high priest. And our last question for this evening, how do you get in? How do you enter in to that rest? Look one last time at the the text beginning at verse 11. The writer's wrapping up the argument of this part of the letter at this point. He says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. We've talked a lot tonight about Psalm 95, about the people in the desert. What did they get wrong? What was their actual failing? Was there something particularly that they got wrong? Well, if you, miss, if you reread these chapters with that question in mind, the answer is as clear as day. Look at these verses with me. Three, chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear 
his voice. Do not harden your hearts. 3 verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 3.16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? 4 verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Chapter 4, verse 7 repeats again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. How do you enter God's rest? What kind of a person lives in the rest of God today and at their death and at the, the consummation of all things under Jesus Christ? It's the person who hears his voice and responds in faith. A person who doesn't harden their heart when they hear the voice of God. Israel didn't listen. They didn't listen to the gospel that they heard at the time of the Exodus, the promise of a rest as they were moving through the promised land. What about us? Are we listening to the word of God? Are we responding in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ? If so, then we can enter into this rest. It's, it's whenever we read these chapters and, and finish where we've just come to here, that the last couple of verses of our passage, verses 12 and 13, start to make sense. They're not an add-on. They, they look a bit out of context. You know, we've been talking here about rest, and all of a sudden there's this famous verse in Scripture, about Scripture. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you see now why the writer to the Hebrews wants to talk about the Word of God? Because the whole of chapter 3 and 4 have been about missing out on God's rest because we don't hear and heed the Word of God. Folks, we're pretty much done here. We're getting towards the end. But there's an obvious question waiting to be asked here, isn't there? An obvious point of application. Am I in the Word? One of the things that strikes me about being a church leader in 2018 is that possibly compared to, to previous times, we're not in the Word the same way. Am I listening to what God has to say to me? Am I responding in faith? Here are a few questions just that might act as, as to help us diagnose our openness to God's word that re might remind us of places of reconnection and reentry. Am I showing up to the places where the word is read and preached? You are. 
lot of you are here this morning or, or in another church. You're taking opportunities to be in a place where the word is, is read and preached. Another question, have you created a personal rhythm of engagement with the Bible? Sundays are, are good. A couple of half hours of engaging with the word gives you an hour, an hour a week. Maybe it doesn't compete that well with eight hours a week of social media or TV or whatever. It's still not the formative narrative in our lives, is it? How could we take steps to create more space? Am I engaging around God's word with other people? So our discipleship groups, whatever Bible study group, other than that, that you might want to be part of, is there a way for bringing God's word into our conversations with other people? Am I making God's word part of what I talk to my family about and my friends about? And a a last question, one that, that maybe isn't very strong in our tradition, but I've been drawn to more recently. Am I finding ways to go deeper with God's word? Um, thinking of things like scripture memorization, meditation. They sound like really old-fashioned ideas, don't they? I, it clicked with me recently, though I wonder if they're the perfect antidote to where we are in our culture today. Uh, let me explain quickly. If, if I remember a piece of scripture, if I read it in my morning quiet time or, or whenever, it's gone, you know, I've done that I've, I've five minutes. It's, it's nice in a way because I can put a tick and I can say, yes, done, done my God's word. But if I, if I memorize it or somehow try to take it into my heart, then it can work on me all day. When I'm at the queue in Tesco, instead of getting annoyed, I get to go back to that place and think some more. When I'm waiting for the glider, and it turns out not to be quite as regular as they promised it would be, or to take longer to get into the city center than they said it would, it's all right. Because that thing the Lord showed me this morning or Monday morning or whenever, I can prayerfully offer that back to him. Am I allowing the word of God to seep from my brain to my heart and into my bloodstream? Eat this book, it says a few times in Scripture. Get it inside you. Folks, if we could live like this, allow God's Word an even greater place in our lives, it would serve as a wonderful invitation for us into God's rest, a rest for today, for our future, and for eternity. I've run out of time, but I want to share one last reflection. During the summertime, I read Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Anybody? A few? Okay. I've set myself this target of trying to read a few worthwhile novels before I die kind of thing. Um, so Wonderway, read A Tale of Two Cities. I don't think you can, you can't really give spoilers for novels that have been around for 170 years, can you? Like, if you don't know how the story ends, don't shoot me for... So, 
the story ends very dramatically, actually. We have a character, Charles Darnay, who's about to be executed um, at the guillotine uh, because he's regarded as a, a French aristocrat and an enemy of the, the revolutionary state. And what we have is another lead character from the book, um, oh, I'm just, Sidney Carton. The thing you need to know is that Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay look quite alike, okay? So Sidney Carton comes to visit Charles Darnay in the prison where he is in Paris. And in a very hush-hush moment, he asks him to change clothing with him because Sidney Carton wants to step into Charles Darnay's shoes and go to the guillotine in his place so that the true Charles Darnay can walk free. It's a beautiful moment of sacrifice, of substitution. There's a lot of the gospel in it. And the novel ends with um, Sidney Carton dressed as and acting as Charles Darnay, about to step out of the cart, go onto the platform and to the guillotine. And those of you who have read the book, you might know, or if you've ever studied it, you might know the line with which the book finishes. Sidney Carton says this, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It's Jesus Christ on the cross. It is finished. My work's done. I'm going to my rest. But he says, because I have done the work, you can all rest too. Today, tomorrow, and forever. It's done. It is finished. My work and yours, done. Now let's enter into this rest. Let's not miss it.